Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this evening's historical group lecture. Our speaker this evening is Dr. Michael Price. He is currently a research fellow at the Manchester Business School and is working on a project at the moment for the US Department of Defense, looking at the benefits that businesses can um, accrue from designing and supporting defense equipment. He became interested in the P-1154 whilst doing his MSc at uh, Imperial College in the history of technology and has since gone on to his doctorate at the University of Sussex uh, exploring issues about the acquisition of complex engineering systems. I'd like to invite him to deliver his lecture. Thank you for that introduction, Peter. The, the talk this evening will mainly look at the politics of the P1154. Um, as many of you who work in aerospace or have any knowledge of it from the media and so on will know, there's very few things more political than defence equipment. And there's no defence equipment more expensive than, than combat aircraft. Currently, the work I'm doing is looking at the JSF, and the, the latest figures that have been bandied around are kind of through life costs of a trillion dollars. So the reason that combat aircraft are political are quite obvious is that they take up a large amount of, of money. Um, I'm quite happy to take questions uh, about the presentation. I'm well aware that there's quite a few people in the audience who worked on the P-1154, so I'm also quite happy to take corrections at the end. Um, but I would like to start at the outset by saying thank you to all the people who've helped me in my research over the years. One thing that struck me very clearly is the, the, the Harrier team were really a team. Often you work in organizations or encounter groups that allude to the idea of teamwork, but the day-to-day -day realities are very different. But it struck me that the, the success of the Harrier, the, the P1150 was created by the same team that created the Harrier, was very much down to the teamwork and couldn't have happened without an interactive, open-minded way of working. And they've kept that in their dealings with me. I've been allowed to sit before the SDSR cancelled the, the Harrier. I was allowed to sit in the design office at Farnborough and see them at work. So it's quite interesting to go into the archives and see things, to interview um, former and current designers, and also to see them at work. It's quite a unique experience. And I was very glad to, to be able to do that, especially as someone who grew up in Kingston. Um, so kind of Harriers were always something that were there in the background in my childhood. Um, as uh, Peter said in the introduction, I started the, looking at P1154 when I was at Imperial College doing an MSc in History of Technology. And I followed this up looking at the uh, P1154 again as part of a PhD at the University of Sussex. Where I was looking at the, the, the attempts over the years to design an advanced short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft. Essentially, something to succeed the Harrier. The Harrier had worked and worked very well. Um, but there were many, many attempts over many, many years to try to come up with something to, to follow it up on it. And in a sense, the P-1154 was actually an attempt to succeed the Harrier before the Harrier itself had happened. As many of you will know, the P-1127 preceded the Harrier and the P-1154 came between the two. Uh, my current work is funded by the Pentagon. I've, got to, I've put the, the, the mandatory the statement that I have to put because I take money from them. I think some things I mentioned on the last slide are part of my current work, so most of it isn't, isn't to do with that. But anything that I say that's been funded by the Pentagon, I have to, to, to let you know about that. 
Um, the current work is looking at costings of the, the JSF through life, um, how you go about designing aircraft to ensure that in service support and so on are reduced in costs and learning ways to actually predict in-service costs better than some of the previous methods that have been used. And actually, the, the research I did in the P1154 was instrumental in actually getting some of that work launched. And I'm still using for the Pentagon data from, from the 1960s and the 1980s, showing how predicted costs back then have turned out 50 years later, because they're the time frames of programs these days. Um, I've written in the past articles for a magazine called Aero Militaria on the P1154. I run a little website, harrier.org.uk, which has got some more information. It's got a copy of the article I wrote for the magazine on there in the history section. And I've also done, written a book recently on a successor program, the P1216, which some of you may be aware of. But I should say that whoever's paid for or sponsored or helped me, all the views tonight that I express are my own and all mistakes as well. So just to start, um, the important thing to remember both throughout the lecture and in general when looking at ASTOVAL is the unique experience that the Harrier has given to the UK. Over the years, the UK's designed, developed, tested, uh, operated and supported the Harrier. There's been over 40 versions of the Harrier over the years. Um, people who are familiar with the history of short take, vertical and short takeoff aircraft will be aware that the, the number of failed attempts in many countries most major manufacturers had a go at some point at a vertical takeoff aircraft. Um, most countries sponsored programs to get them launched, to get them into service. All failed with the exception of the Harrier and the, the Soviet Yak programs, the 38 and the, one, and the 41. Um, and it's probably fair to say that the Harrier is a far more successful technical exercise as well as production exercise and a service ex exercise than the Yak ever was. Um, obviously, the Harrier has been exported to, to the United States to the Marine Corps, to the, the, the navies of Spain, India, Italy, and Thailand. And of course, recently, um, as well as entering service in the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, we've uh, exported our own Harriers to the United States of late. Um, there is underlying the whole lecture a, a ring of familiarity with current events and the 1960s. When I was originally due to give this lecture, it was just after the Strategic Defense and Security Review, which is a mouthful in itself, um, and obviously it's very controversial, the cancel cancellation of the Harriers, the getting rid of Ark Royal and so on. And clearly in the last few weeks we're hearing that the decisions made then may be reversed. So we'll, hopefully people that are familiar with that story will, will see fam familiar um, issues being raised during the lecture and we'll come back to it at the end of the lecture. Um, one other thing I suppose I should say as well about the Harrier is that it's not just about the aircraft, it's about the engine. What I've worked um, with people in Rolls-Royce at Bristol over the years and it's quite clear that the Harrier and all VSTOL aircraft, more than any other, depend on the development of the engine and the work done by the engine companies to ensure that the aircraft works. And the team at Kingston worked very closely with people at Bristol over the years. So although I won't be talking much about the engines, they're absolutely central and essential and were so in the story of the 1154. So why is it we should look at the, the P-1154 if it was a failed aircraft? There's lots of books these days looking at projects that were never left the drawing board, let alone got into the factory or into flight test or service. Um, what is it that an academic can possibly learn or a more general audience can possibly learn from looking at things that fail? Um, one of the things is clearly that by understanding your failures, you can hopefully improve your chances of success. If you understand the organisational, the technical, the political, the financial, all the things that go together with these big complex projects, if you can understand the interactions and the reasons why they may be combined to cause a failure, it may help you manage success in the future. 
Obviously, the experience that you gain anyway could be quite valuable. In the case of the 1154, it may well be an experience of what not to do that could have that probably informed future actions more than anything else. Um, the area that I work in, the, the, the research group I work in, are look at innovation studies, as they call it. And there's great um, interest in looking at what the next success is going to be. At Manchester at the moment, it's the material graphene. And I was at a presentation last week where graphene is... Any problem you have, graphene is going to solve it, probably, hopefully. Um, the university is desperately gambling that you know, they're going to get lots of money from this. But you never know how things are going to turn out. There's always great hopes at the start. And one of the things that's quite clear during the research for the P1154 is that although people now generally think it wasn't such a bad thing, it was cancelled. Looking in the archives, people were mortified when it was cancelled. The, um, the chief designer of the P1154, John Fossard, who was a former president of the society in the 1980s, his view that when 1154 was cancelled, he had to go back to working on the P1127, he thought that by the time he retired, he'd end up as chief designer of the Sopwith pup, the way things were going. <laughs> so... There was very much a view when it was cancelled that this was terrible. And obviously, you know, John Fossard had to lay people off, so obviously he'd have a memory different maybe from others. But certainly, in subsequent years, the success of the Harrier has kind of pushed the 1154 to one side. If the Harrier contract hadn't been given as a kind of um, consolation prize by the government for, for the cancellation of the 1154, if Kingston Factory had closed down, then maybe things would be, would be seen differently. So looking at 1154 also gives us a different angle on the Harrier and the overall history of the Harrier. So just a bit of background. Um, I throw around these names, Kingston and so on. Um, the group at Kingston started off in 1912, Sopwith Aviation, um, went through HG Hawker Engineering, Hawker Aircraft. Basically, there was known, known as Hawkers from 1920 onwards. Various names over, over various periods of time. Then went into British Aerospace. Um, and actually, subsequent to the story I'm telling here, in the early 1990s, we moved to Farnborough. And it's actually only last year that the last people... Uh, well, there's a few people still left at Farnborough, around 40, I understand. So there's still a small number of people who can trace their heritage back. But it, they were always specialists in fighter aircraft. They built, built some of the mo designed and built some of the most famous aircraft in history, the Sopwith Camel, the Hawker Hurricane, the Hawker Hunter. And obviously, the issue around, say, the Hawker Hurricane, it's arguable that you know, I wouldn't be up here speaking English if it wasn't for the Hawker Hurricane. So it's quite a significant history that they had. One of the reasons they were so successful, in my view, is that they did stick to what they knew. They stuck, essentially, to, to fighter aircraft. Uh, they only ever built one twin-engined aircraft and another two-engined aircraft that had a jet and a rocket and designed a few others. And um, a couple of programs got launched to the extent that some manufacturing happened. But in general, it's single-engined, largely single, sometimes two-seat fighter aircraft, ground attack and so on. And so instrumental in shaping the, the, the way that the RAF and the Royal Navy evolved. At one point in the 1930s, I think around 80% of the RAF squadrons had Hawker aircraft. Many companies in the industry were building Hawker aircraft under a license. So the impact of the Kingston team was extensive over a long period of time. But this, this story of being fighter specialists in 1957, the, 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 there was the famous Sands white paper when Duncan Sands announced that the future wouldn't involve fighter aircraft. It's a bit of a simplification to say that he was missile mad. He actually cancelled missile programs as well. But certainly the, the, the days of the manned interceptor fighter were seen as being, as being um, numbered. 
And as that was Hawker's specialisation, it was clear they had to do something else. They had an aircraft, actually, they were manufacturing at the time, the P-1121, which is kind of a Mark II interceptor strike aircraft. But that wasn't ordered by the government, so they had to do something. So that's when they got into Vistol and the P-1127, which kind of almost happened by accident, but as we all know, turned out quite well in the end. So the Kingston are celebrating their centenary this year. There's a weekend of events in, in Kingston on the 2nd of the 5th of, 20, of June 2012, which is the Jubilee weekend. But there are other events going on across uh, 2012 and 2013. Um, just the record there, more than 45,000 Kingston-signed aircraft have been built either in Kingston or in other places. And since 1914, the, basically the British forces have always had one of their aircraft in service in one way or another. So it's quite a significant record, as I said before. So coming back to the, to the P-1154... The situation for those who either uh, weren't there or can't remember or have forgotten is that in the early 1960s, late 1950s, early 1960s, you had this end of empire scenario, the winds of change as Harold Macmillan called it. But you still had Britain involved in wars, what's called East of Suez. So it's in the Middle East and the Far East. There were campaigns going on in the early 1960s where the, the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, the Army were all involved. Um, there was also a financial crisis, uh, balance of payments and the value of the pound. The, thing, um, the pound was pe pegged to the dollar um, at the time, so was, there wasn't this free-floating exchange rates, and that was one of the big problems that, caused, that were being caused to the British economy in the early 1960s. You also had a change of government in the early 1960s, which features in the P-1154 story. You had rivalry between the Air Force and the Navy over should they have aircraft carriers or should they fly what was called the islands, aircraft in the island stance, where the RAF would operate from islands east of Suez in place of aircraft carriers, because the choice was seen as essentially between one or the other. So part of that argument was whether they should have a V-Stall aircraft or a conventional one. Um, the Vistol aircraft can operate from many places and from many types of ships in comparison to conventional aircraft, so there were issues raised there. There were also discussions around should the UK have uh, its defence focused around European cooperation or focus on an American alliance. Um, and the technical solution of P-1154 was shaped by all these, but hopefully you can see that these factors are ones that are very familiar today. In the 1960s, the East of Suez campaigns were in um, Malaysia and Southern Arabia, and today we have Afghanistan, we had Iraq previously and so on. And obviously, hopefully everybody here is aware of the financial crisis, but hopefully not to too, too great a degree. Um, the 1154 started in the early 1960s, with an actual a NATO requirement. The idea was that rather than buy, each country buying different types of aircraft and making every air force incompatible with each other and not having economies of scale, NATO should have a single type of combat aircraft for ground attack and a single type of support aircraft to support it in the field. Because of the emergence of tactical nuclear weapons, there was a belief that flying from a regular airbase wouldn't be possible in a, a World War III because they'd all be nuked, basically, by Russian bombs and missiles. So the idea was to, to disperse the aircraft out into the field and have them supported by specialised aircraft. So here we've got some early P-1154s with little NATO markings, rather optimistically put, drawn on. And then this was a de Havilland 129 aircraft. There were these things called NATO Basic Military Requirement 3 for the P-1154, and number four, NBMR-4 was for the transport aircraft. And as you can see, the idea was they would fly from a field, 
either taking short takeoff or vert vertical takeoff and vertical landing, and be refueled and rearmed using supplies and stores coming in on these transport aircraft, which had special pods of lift jet engines to lift them up vertically. At the time, there was a big issue around the best way to power a vertical and short takeoff aircraft. Should you get, give it dedicated lift engines that just did the vertical part? Um, or should you give it a single engine that could use it in both vertical flight and in conventional wingborne flight? And in this case, the P-1154 and Hawk are generally stuck to the single approach, but for transport aircraft and other, some other combat aircraft teams would go with lift jets quite often. But one of the key things was that you'd have off-base dispersal, which NATO had tried with previous aircraft, which was subsonic, the Fiat G91, which could f was this requirement, I think, actually stated it should fly out of a cow pasture, which was, um, I'm sure they defined it more tightly than that. But the idea was that these should be operating from a field, but they'd also need to be supersonic. Now, as we all know, generally supersonic aircraft have big flames coming out the back of them. They need a lot of energy to go fast, and lots of energy pointing down into a grassy field isn't necessarily a good idea. So this requirement was drawn up in advance of a lot of the work on the P-1127. There was very little experience at the time of operating aircraft off, off base, but there was clear and pressing need in this situation where World War III was assumed to be What's called, there would be a NATO tripwire response. One Russian soldier puts his boot over the border and we nuke the hell out of them, and similarly they'll probably do the same to us. So that was the nature of the war they're facing, and that's the response. Now what happened was that NATO put out this requirement across, country, across all its member countries, and it led to what was the biggest design competition in history up to that point. Um, many thousands of engineers in, in comp aircraft companies and aero engine companies and avionics companies around the world put their best brains onto this. At Hawker, the design for the 1154 in 1961 and early 1962 had around 400 design engineers involved and others involved in some wind tunnel work and so on. And they liaised with companies like Ferranti on the avionics and with Bristol on the engines. So even at the early design stages, you're talking you know, hundreds if not possibly thousands of people just on one programme and thousands across many nations looking at these. The outcome of MBMR3 was that the P1154 was declared the winner but because it was a trans-NATO exercise, the French Mirage 3V, which used lift jets allied to kind of a Delta-familiar Mirage airframe, was declared to be of equal merit. And this is when you took industrial and financial factors in, into account. So although it sounds like there was kind of like political issues behind it, there were actually also basic economic ones. I think that the Mirage team had recognized that getting good industrial participation and spreading the work with companies like Boeing in the States and so on um, and with uh, BAC up at Wharton um, would be quite beneficial to them. So there was this issue that technically the P1150 were all seen as the best. Industrially, the Mirage 3V, the outcome was there was no clear winner, so obviously uh, discussions ensued. Um, the situation that faced the RAF at the time when, when NATO were looking at that was that although there was this World War III scenario of, of nuclear war in Europe, they were actually engaged in fights in uh, what's called confrontation, a nice euphemistic term for a small war, um, in Malaysia with, with Indonesia. And they were also involved in Southern Arabia with um, rebels that were sponsored by NASA, nationalist Arab rebels trying to get them out of Aden and the southern, Aden, uh, southern Arabian protectorates that they had. So these were the kind of leftovers of empire. Although Malaysia was no longer part of the, was no longer ruled by Britain, they still had a defence um, pact with them. So what you had is 
in the jungle, they would cut out these landing zones where helicopters and short takeoff aircraft were going, propeller aircraft, to drop troops in who would then chase Indonesian infiltrators coming through the jungle. Um, occasionally, there'd be a need for a hawker hunter to fly a, a reconnaissance or a, a possible ground attack mission in support of this. And it would be quite helpful to have the support aircraft on, on hand because obviously if you're looking for people in the jungle, the chances are you just get a fleeting glimpse of them. So waiting two hours for something to fly in from Singapore or somewhere wasn't terribly convenient. Um, for South Arabia, you can see the kind of territory you're looking at, deserts, hard rocks, um, quite barren. But the hunters were operated in quite extreme uh, situations. They did fl fly off some unpaved runways on occasion. Um, temperatures up around kind of 50 degrees centigrade, quite extreme uh, temp temperatures and so on, and humidity. But they got a lot of experience, and this was fed back to hawkers. So they had kind of working knowledge of what the RAF were doing. But the main thing was that the RAF were actually fighting wars that were very different from the predicted World War III, that MB MBMR three and the P-1154 had originated in. Now, what the RAF really wanted, and this is where... Um, People, this gets people very excited. I have my own views on TSR-2. I'll probably keep quiet about them. But for people not in the know, the TSR-2 is Tactical Strike and Reconnaissance 2. It's actually wrongly named by... When I did my PhD, there was a guy there, Aubrey Jones, who's Minister of Supply um, in the 1950s. And he was given a briefing by the RAF. Um, and in the briefing, they used a shorthand. They would call... The Buccaneer was known as the, the TSR-1. TSR-2, this thing, was actually OR-343 at the time. Um, and TSR-3 was the P-1127, but he stood up in Parliament and called it the TSR-2 by mistake instead of its proper name, so it got lumbered with this name that people think is inexplicable. But although it's tactical strike or reconnaissance, it was actually, in truth, a sort of semi-strategic aircraft. The idea was this would carry nuclear, both tactical and ultimately strategic nuclear weapons, for around 1,000 nautical miles at high speed at low altitude. And this was to participate both in the kind of World War III scenario in Europe, but also in the Far East where range was an issue, flying from bases perhaps in northern Australia over Indonesia. It wouldn't be going, hopefully, to, to drop nuclear weapons, but to fly reconnaissance missions and so on. So it was an all-singing, all-dancing aircraft. The justification the RAF's always had for its own separate existence is the kind of unique aspect of air power, and nothing expresses that more clearly than strategic air power. So something like the TSR-2 has always been something the RAF has been quite keen on because it gives them a clear, defined role. The TSR-2, as I said, was nuclear. It was also uh, one of the first aircraft to use digital systems, and people who are familiar with the story are probably aware of the delays, weight increases, all kinds of problems that were had with the TSR-2. But the RAF stuck with it as long as it was clear that they were getting it. And once they realised they could keep the, the capability, we'll come to in a minute, um, they did quite actually ultimately abandon the TSR-2, but not for hundreds of millions, equivalent of um, a fair few billion these days have been spent uh, flying one or two. One prototype actually flew, uh, another was ready to fly, but they all eventually ended up getting scrapped. There was about uh, 20 of them in various states of, of, of completion. But the thing about TSR-2 really was it's very expensive. It ate up a lot of the RAF's budget. So the P-1154 was always second fiddle to the TSR-2. So the more was spent on TSR-2, the less could be spent on P-1154. I also think that people like TSR-2 because it's every schoolboy's idea of what a plane should be. It's it's all nice and pointy up at the front, big flames coming out the back. That's, those are the sorts of planes I remember drawing as a kid. So it kind of fits right into that. Now, the Royal Navy, on the other hand, in the 1960s, they had, um, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, five fleet aircraft carriers at the, at the time, going down to four. This is HMS Hermes, which you'll remember from the Falklands War. 
Um, they would carry, Hermes would carry perhaps a dozen or 20 conventional aircraft and some helicopters. And the types of aircraft are things like the, the, the Civix in here, the Havilland Civix, which was subsonic, designed in the 1940s. People may remember the prototype of DH-110 crashing at, at uh, Farnborough, killing John Derry and lots of people in the crowd in, early, in 1951, if I remember correctly, 1952, I think. Um, but these aircraft were essentially just post-Second World War generation. But because they weren't enormously fast, they could land on the aircraft carriers, which were also designed and laid down in the Second World War. Hermes was laid down in 1944, before jet aircraft were really an issue, before supersonic aircraft had really been thought of. So the Navy had this situation where they were trying to, trying to do their part east of Suez in these small conventional wars. They could do it with these old aircraft, but they recognised there were limitations on these, and they weren't terribly useful in the World War III scenario, although in fairness, the Navy's main role was east of Suez at that time. They weren't going to be fighting um, convoys across the North Atlantic to any extent. That came much later in, in the Cold War period. But obviously, the Navy struggling on with these old, ship, uh, old ships and aircraft. What they really wanted was this, this ship called the CVA-01. This was designed in the early 1960s, um, to quite an advanced stage, but it was a big new aircraft carrier. They wanted new aircraft, in this case shown in American Phantom, but a Buccaneer aircraft um, built by, by Blackburn. New missile systems, new radar, new support ships to, 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 to escort the aircraft carrier. Essentially a new fleet, a new Royal Navy. So this didn't come cheaply either. So underlying all the Royal Navy's views of P1154 were, okay, we've got plenty of other places to spend our money. So the wheeze that the government came up with was the idea of commonality. If the RAF want new aircraft to replace the Hunters and the Navy want new aircraft to replace their Sea Vixens, why don't they use the same aircraft? And the Ministers of Defence, first Harold Watkinson and later this guy um, Peter Thornycroft, what they came up with is the idea of commonality, which they got from, from the other chap here, Robert McNamara, the American Secretary of Defence, um, the man who brought the world to Ford Edsel. He was a, a, an executive at Ford first. Um, he had a team of whiz kids that he brought to the Pentagon, was big into analytical design. He believed that uh, everything was inefficient in, in the American forces. What they could do is unify requirements. So they came up with a TFX programme. Um, which was this aircraft, became the F-111 for the Air Force, this version, the, gr the green one, and the white one is the Navy version. Um, essentially, the F-111, this was a low-level ground attack bomber, similar to TSR-2 in its, its mission, nu kind of tactical nuclear strike and so on. This was a high-altitude, um, loiter for several hours, fire missiles at um, aircraft attacking aircraft carriers, Soviet bombers coming to attack American aircraft carriers. This was the Navy version. So they had two very different missions, but McNamara forced through the F-111 on the American forces. Ultimately, the Navy version was cancelled, didn't work out. It turned out you couldn't make the two requirements compatible. Big controversy in the States. It's left scars for decades on the idea of common aircraft between the services. Um, people to, to this day allude to this. But Thornycroft thought it's a good idea to try this. And he ended up actually, there's, there's some quotes I've got in my notes that I brought with me about him pleading with the, the, the two services to either reduce their requirements in the UK so they could have a common aircraft or to figure out another plan. But what happened was that there was a second agenda going on at the time. There's this chap, um, Julian Amory, who's the Minister of Aviation. There was a specialised separate ministry for the aircraft industry in the early 1960s. It was seen as a big strategic important industry for the nation. Just as today people talk about wind generation and so on. A aviation was seen as the future in the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, Julian Amory is a very interesting character. 
He was part of the pro-European and anti-American wing of the Conservative Party. There was a legacy in the Conservatives of being opposed to America because they're essentially imperial rivals. So Europe was seen as a way of bolstering British strength to enable Britain to still sustain an empire. And Julian Amory was very supportive of that. He was the son of Leo Amory, the guy who famously um, um, told Chamberlain to, in the name of God, go and get Churchill into, into being Prime Minister in 1940. And his brother, John, was uh, famously a S member of the SS. He was a traitor and executed after the Second World War. It's a very interesting family history. But <laughs> Julian Amory um, himself was very supportive of the UK aircraft industry, where he felt they didn't have the resources to go alone. He'd happily go in with Europe. So he's, here he is signing, the, signing the, um, the, the, the treaty, actually, to support Concorde. So he got Concorde launched. He also supported programs like the P-1154, the TSR-2, not just for military need, but from this belief that a strong aviation industry is part of having a strong nation. So the P-1154, this is the... I'm trying to give the very, very brief version here without going into too, too many um, technical aspects. It's very similar as an aircraft to the, the P-1127, what became the Harrier. So it had a single engine in the middle. The basic configuration is the same. It looks like a stretched version of P-1127. The main difference is the front nozzles of the engine had what's called plenum chamber burning. Fuel was injected in them and burnt to boost the engine power in vertical fly and to fly supersonically. So you'd have big flames coming out of here going vertically or going back. Um, about 1,200 degrees Kelvin um, was, the, was the temperature they were looking at. So quite a significant uh, issue. This was drawn, the first version, in early 1961. It's interesting because the P1127 had only started hovering a couple of months before and hadn't actually flown conventionally at all. So there's not a huge amount of experience at Hawkers or in the UK, and already their kind of this issue of trying to run before you can walk was, was thrown up. And Hawkers themselves didn't push the P1127. Ralph Hooper, who originated the P1127 and became the chief designer on the 1127, um, he drew this up um, over a weekend, essentially, but didn't push it too much on the ministry. He could see that the RAF wanted a supersonic aircraft. They initially looked at the 1127, decided they didn't want it, they wanted something supersonic after the NATO issues. Um, but then this developed because of NATO requirements. It was developed further. So running ahead a little bit, the, uh, it's a very long and convoluted set of issues that ensued in the next two or three years where the Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Aviation, wanted the RAF and the Royal Navy to replace their sea vixens and hunters with one aircraft, the P-1154. So they took the version designed for NATO, turned it into, ultimately, the version for the RAF, which is essentially similar. It was designed to do a similar kind of low-level attack mission, um, a few other issues for east of Suez, but conventional uh, attack roles. It wasn't too much of a, a, a departure. The Navy, however, wanted a two-seat aircraft. The RAF and NATO version had one seat. They wanted a much bigger wing to fly at a high altitude, to, to loiter um, for several hours waiting for Soviet bombers, and then shoot down Soviet bombers with long-range missiles. So it needed a big radar in the nose to detect these bombers. The RAF version had a small radar just for, for <coughs> ranging on targets close to the ground. There are many attempts to, to draw up a common version. So they take kind of the wing from the Navy version and stick it onto the Air Force version. Um, I, th I think I counted there were 53 different general arrangement drawings of various versions and so on of, of the 1154. But essentially it was chalk and cheese. The requirements were chalk and cheese. The aircraft to meet them were chalk and cheese. Any of the common versions that were drawn, once the weight estimates were done, it was seen that they couldn't fulfill this mission for the Navy. They wouldn't have the endurance. And they were too heavy for the RAF mission 
Um, so it, the compromise wasn't really possible. Um, a number of issues were looked into. Rolls-Royce got involved in the story. Instead of having one Bristol Sidley engine, they decided what was needed was two Rolls-Royce engines. So some versions were looked at that. That had some support in government because Rolls-Royce were historically supported by the UK government as kind of almost a national champion. Um, and this time they had very little work. Bristol had got a lot of defence contracts. They got the Concorde engine and so on. And so they started off, the first schemes of a joint aircraft were about 80% common, they estimated, but they didn't meet the requirements. When they got to joint aircraft that seemed to meet the requirements, there was only 20% commonality between components. So actually there was no benefit to doing any of it. But that was a, the very short version over several years. It got very antagonistic at some stages. Um, people like Lord Mountbatten got involved. Um, the famous Eric Winkle Brown, who's director of the Naval Air Division, he was vehemently opposed to the P-1154 going on to aircraft carriers. One of the issues being that if um, an air, a, a vertical or short takeoff aircraft goes on an aircraft carrier, you can get it onto the small old aircraft carriers. So it's very hard to justify new big aircraft carriers. Um, but there are also issues around the performance of the P-1154. I felt it was unproven technology, whereas the Americans had this, the F-4 Phantom, which was in service, it was proven, it was what the Navy were quite keen on getting, even though it didn't meet their full specification. A bird in the hand and so on was seen to be a better thing. Mountbatten got very involved in making the Navy's case that the Navy should have the east of Suez strike mission and that the RAF shouldn't have their island strategy. So the P-1154 got caught up in that. So the idea of having anything that threatened the carriers would therefore threaten their mission. So it's seen as it's better to have the sure thing than to have the risky thing. Um, and obviously the idea of the one reason of going into the joint program in the 1154 was to save money to pay for the carriers. Once it became clear that very little money would be saved because a common aircraft wasn't possible, so you'd be essentially developing two types of P1154, people in the Navy became much less keen on it. And VSTOL was not looked on favourably by the Navy because they'd go for what's now called cats and traps, catapults. Here's a catapult attached to an F-4 Phantom, lots of lovely big flames coming out the back as it gets fired off. And then it would have a, an arrestor hook here at the back that would catch wires when it landed on the carrier. The Navy were very familiar with this technology. Effectively, it was short takeoff and landing at sea. They had the carriers, so they felt quite happy with that. Um, subsequent to looking at the joint aircraft with the RAF, it was decided that the Navy and Peter Thornycroft allowed them to go ahead with this, would purchase the, the, um, the Phantom, but they decided that it was best to have some spay engines from Rolls-Royce rather than the existing ones. So instead of getting the nice cheap aircraft from the Americans, they ended up getting a, a, an expensive aircraft that was a unique British version, didn't provide a huge amount of work because they only ended up buying 52, whereas the original number was 140 they wanted to buy because the cost increases. I think costs went up from 1 million to around 2.5 million per unit. Um, the aircraft was delayed because of the spay engines. It had some UK avionic systems, the tail section was made by BAC at Wharton and so on to get some work into the UK. So again, there was political issues around buying an American aircraft that were involved in this. So with the PLM-54 out of the Royal Navy, the Air Force version went ahead in early 1964. Bristol's built several of the engines. This is a BS-100 engine. So this is the front nozzles. These are the rear ones. It's, it's, it's uh, been held in a, an assembly rig here. One of the key differences is these these red things here are ramps that will vary the area of the nozzles. As many of you know, with um, supersonic jets, you have to vary the area according to whether you're using augmentation or not. So subsonically, the outer part would be used, but supersonically, both sections would be used, and red-hot flames would be going past here. And in vertical flight, PCB, plenum chamber burning, would always be in use. 
This engine's got all these lovely colours on because these are heat-sensitive paints to find out the temperatures, the effect of the temperatures on the materials, so on. They change colour according to the temperatures they're exposed to. And in tests, although PCB um, wasn't used before the cancellation, but subsequently there were a few tests um, on noise and the BS100, they had run a Pegasus engine with some experimental PCB gear to get some data and to learn about it. But it was quite clear that it was going to be quite hot. There'd be quite a few issues. Um, these hot jets would come out of the plane and go back into the air intakes and the engine would be breathing in hot air, reducing its thrust, and all sorts of issues would be possible. But it hadn't really been worked out, but that hadn't stopped them building quite a few engines, um, spending quite a few million pounds on these. The core of it was the Olympus engine that was used in TSR2 and subsequently to be used in Concorde. At Kingston, they started building, they'd fully designed the P1154, they started building it. Here's the, the centre fuselage in the assembly rigs, uh, assembly jigs. These are the wings down at what was fallen down at Hamble. Um, now GE Aviation. So quite a lot of work had been done, and in the course of a year, they'd actually, once they'd been allowed to go ahead with the RAF version after the years of delay of the common version, this thing charged ahead quite quickly. There was also a, a number of contracts placed um, in industry. Um, Ferranti got a contract for the radar and the inertial navigation system that's installed in the, in the nose and in the tail. So this is an internal view of the aircraft with some of the technical stuff. But even this got tied up with political issues because there was what was known as the Ferranti scandal at the time. On the Bloodhound missile program, Ferranti had been seen as making excess profits. So contracts for the equipment were delayed for a few months while Ferranti sorted out these financial issues. So it looked like these would delay the overall aircraft program. There were wind tunnel tests undertaken, and unlike, uh, hopefully today and in subsequent years, um, not all the wind tunnel tests were done in advance of that situation before of building the aircraft. So it turned out in early 1965 it looked like the tail would have to be adjusted in position. There were various issues that were coming up at the time. But this was real design and engineering work. They were designing and building the components. Um, there are several people I know in the audience involved in this process. There are various issues I've heard of. The aircraft is controlled in hovering by air bled from the engine to the wingtips through little pipes, and the valve to bleed the air apparently was causing lots of problems. But this is kind of real proper engineering. These are not drawings on paper or basic calculations. So the P-1154 was a real physical aircraft. It did exist, even if it didn't get to fly in the end. Um, the RAF version... One of the things you can see in this picture is the nose folds, ostensibly for maintenance, but actually it means it can fit on the, the, the lifts of the existing Royal Navy aircraft carriers. So the RAF did keep making the point, they came up with this idea of what they call the offshore support ship. The idea being that not having aircraft on the carriers is a good idea, but when you need them, you park the carriers as a refueling base and you fly the P-1154s on, they can refuel, they can have basic maintenance in the hangars, and then they can fly off onto the land bases where they're required. Um, that didn't go down terribly well with the Navy, unsurprisingly. Um, but essentially the idea was, today we've got HMS Ocean, and it was flying an aircraft off something like that. So we've seen recently in Libya where you had Apache helicopters operating from HMS Ocean. It was the same kind of idea that they were looking at. But just to kind of sum up some of the politics of the P-1154 at the time, it, it developed due to both changing military needs over time, the, the Navy's views of what they needed, the operational environment east of Suez, um, but also political support. There was this guy, Sir Solly Zuckerman, who was the chief scientific, scientific advisor to the Ministry of Defence. And in his uh, biography, he's not terribly keen on the P-1154 programs at the time. The actual do documents at the time in the archive at Kew show quite a different story. Um, one of the issues that drove him is this guy is uh, President Sukarno of Indonesia who had a dream 
which was to unite Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines in a big empire, which he called Mafilindo, hence the confrontation with Malaysia. And he bought a load of supersonic MiGs off the Russians. And Zuckerman was, did basically thought, well, we don't need supersonic speed necessarily for the missions, but we can't be shown up by the opponents flying their flashy supersonic jets. So although he was chief scientific advisor and would make arguments, he was also expressing views that actually to them seemed quite clear and were expressed, I have to say, in some... Um, it was a different culture and the language used was quite surprising. I can't repeat it here. It would be constitute racist language these days. But there's lots of issues in the archive around, you know, we can't have them showing us up. So that's also an underlying kind of current of why we need a supersonic aircraft where, in reality, a subsonic one can do. Anyway, what happened in the late 1964 is you had a change of government. In came, in came the Beatles into power with the fifth Beatle, Harold Wilson. Um, you had Dennis Healy as Minister of Defence and Roy Jenkins, Ministry, Ministry of Aviation. They were quite sceptical. They thought that the, the aircraft industry had been fed or bedded for a long time, was inefficient. They thought the forces were duplicative, did lots of things. Slightly earlier, just before the Conservative government left in 64, they'd actually created the Unified Ministry of Defence, which Mountbatten had led on. The idea that in the past, the Ministry of Defence was essentially a coordination ministry, and there were separate ministries for the, each of the services. So you had the War Ministry for the Army, the Admiralty for the Navy, and the Air Ministry for the Air Force. These were subsumed in the MOD. So the Ministry of Defence became a much stronger character, and there were very few stronger characters than Dennis Healy. Um, the, the idea was they'd launch a defence review, the new government, because new governments seem to like to launch defence reviews. Um, but the aircraft projects, because they were the most expensive item, would be reviewed, instead of being reviewed over 18 months or so, would be reviewed in around 100 days. This is the idea that came from John F. Kennedy, of your first 100 days being very important. Um, and under these programmes, the P-1154, the TSR-2, and a big transport aircraft, the HS-681, which would support the aircraft in the field, like the earlier one we saw, the NATO one, was, were, were reviewed. But there were also underlying issues behind this. There was a balance of payments crisis, as I mentioned. This uh, a cartoon, I think I remember, it's from the, the Standard, the Evening Standard, the Evening Standard. But you had basically uh, a, a rag, uh, Wilson dressed in rags with his famous pipe, um, trying to support both a global role for Britain and standing on the base of the welfare state and kind of being crushed by the weight of this role. So you have East of Suez here, and this is the British Army of the Rhine, basically the, the NATO commitment, um, the nuclear uh, issues as well, the Polaris missiles and things like this. And the idea was basically they wanted to stay East of Suez, but they wanted to do it more cheaply. They thought it was Britain's mission to stay East of Suez, but if we just got rid of the inefficiencies, we can stay there. So there may be some familiar... Uh, some familiar issues of today coming up there. Um, and interestingly, the financial crisis was called, uh, I think it was by Wilson himself, the Gnomes of Zurich, he referred to them. These are the bankers that were causing the, 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 the financial crisis at the time. So there was this idea that it was external forces to the government causing it, and the government would have to cut their cloth accordingly, but it wasn't their fault. Anyway, as a result of the review... What was decided that in order to stay east of Suez, you could only do, afford to do that by getting rid of these expensive aircraft development and production programs. So the P-1154 for the RAF was cancelled, and the, the Phantom aircraft was bought for the RAF. So here it is carrying lots of bombs, plus all the air-to-air -air missiles. Um, these also had spay engines, were similarly expensive. Um, the RAF didn't get as many examples as they would have liked. There also, the government decided at uh, Jenkins' behest more than anything to go ahead with the, the P-1127, turn it into the Harrier. 
but only a small number were initially ordered, around 60. The idea had been to order around 180 P1154s, which were you know, twice the weight, twice the power, and probably twice the amount of business for hawkers. So the, the Harrier was seen as very much a consolation prize. It was still threatened by cancellation. The RAF probably wanted more phantoms. Um, to get the phantoms, and also the TSR2 was replaced by the TFX we saw earlier, the Americans gave very generous credit terms, which eased the financial payment issues. Um, normally, the British government would buy from the UK industry on cash terms, but the credit payments meant that the phantoms, the TFXs, could be paid for much more cheaply, effectively, on an annual fiscal basis, which is, again, one of the big issues today. It's one thing to pay for things over on the never-never. It's another to have to cough up for it today. Um, and also, these aircraft promised to be delivered more uh, earlier than the P-1154, although, as it turned out, with the delays from the Spey engine, they probably, possibly weren't, but, of course, we don't know. But also, Healy wanted, and Wilson wanted to get into Europe, so they launched some joint programs with the French. They went, created a trainer aircraft, but ultimately got a strike aircraft, the Jaguar. Um, that's another long-winded story. The idea was to please de Gaulle, but de Gaulle was never pleased by anything the British did, so it didn't work. <laughs> but the Jaguar ended up essentially, in many ways, the effective replacement of the P-1154. It's very similar to, to the performance and the missions of the 1154, but without the vertical takeoff capability. I did once do the sums on the, on kind of the proverbial fag packet to see if any money had been saved by these decisions because subsequent to this, the TFX was then cancelled. There was the Anglo-French variable geometry aircraft that was meant to come afterwards. That got cancelled. So then the RAF bought the Buccaneer and then went into the tornado. And um, it's highly unlikely that the cancellations in 1965 saved a penny, I think. Even with the worst projections, they were cheaper than the eventual outturn. But the idea at the time was essentially to, to save money and to get new equipment sooner. So did it matter that the 1154 was cancelled? Well, obviously, as I said at the start, the, the Harrier happened, and it was a success. Here we've got a, a Sea Harrier, later version, landing on the assault ship HMS Intrepid in San Carlos during the Falklands War. Um, instead of it run out of fuel, essentially, it had been divert, um, sent on a mission from a land base that they built, uh, HMS Sheathbill, they called it, even though it was a land base, which is um, some um, steel planking that was placed in a bog in the Falkland Islands, and the Harriers operated from the carriers from there. Um, these particular ones have been chasing Argentinian planes and had to divert to HMS Intrepid. But this wasn't a regular aircraft carrier. This is just a helicopter platform, but the Harrier could do that. So it, the Falklands really showed the flexibility of the Harrier. There were issues around whether the P-1154 would be able to do this. There's big flames shooting out the front here. It could have caused problems. The air would go, circulate back, as I said, into the engine and cause the aircraft to crash. Um, so the Harrier did succeed. So the cancellation of the P-1154 can certainly be seen as allowing the Harrier to go ahead. There's lots of discussion and debate that people have had and to be had still over whether the 1154 would have worked. Um, and there's this question of, was it a, a red herring? Was it just a misleading thing for political reasons? Was it a political aeroplane? Was it not technically sound? And one of the things I found interesting is that looking at the subsequent history, as I did, the Kingston team kept trying similar things. They looked at all the other types of vertical takeoff aircraft, um, but the Air Force and subsequently the Navy, who eventually came back after getting the Sea Harrier to seeing vertical takeoff aircraft as a good thing, because it allowed them to keep some aircraft carriers after the conventional ones were cancelled, um, were looking for something like the P-1154. So in the 1970s, they went for the um, 1185, with the, or jointly with the Americans, which is powered by a smaller Pegasus engine from the Harrier, but used the same PCB system. And you can kind of see the similarities. Um, in the 1980s, they got one of the old engines that were used for the PCB tests for the 1154, put it in a Harrier, which had an extended front fuselage, put it in a gantry at Shoebury Ness in Essex, 
The whole thing was a, a typical kind of British approach that the engine had been sold to a scrap merchant. Um, the Bristol engineer found out about this and went and gave the scrap merchant a fiver, apparently, and got the, got the 50 quid, some ridiculous sum, got the engine back. Um, this was assembled from, I think, about, the wings were from one Harrier and the fuselage from another. Sections were from a Kestrel fatigue aircraft and so on. It was all bolted together. Some apprentices put the extra section in for, essentially for free. Um, the rig was an old military rig from the 19th, the 19th century for moving <coughs> cannon. But what they did was they got the army to perform a training exercise at Shubiness and moved the whole thing from where it was to where it needed to be and rigged it all up and did some tests. The Americans built a, a similar system, cost many millions of dollars, it was all bespoke and designed. Um, and it's arguable the results that came out of this actually were uh, better simply because it's a very empirical process. Um, the flows under a vertical takeoff aircraft aren't amenable to, comp to computational fluid dynamics and other digital uh, prediction techniques. You do use scale models, then test it at full scale, and then test your methodology of scaling. One of the issues with using small models is that gravity doesn't scale, so you have to adjust your buoyancy levels and all this. And there's this recursive process that went on for years and years and years. And they built up a lot of experience at Kingston and Bristol and this kind of thing that got a lot of buy-in to the current JSF program. Um, Kingston themselves then subsequently designed this aircraft, the P-1216. This is the thing I wrote a book about. Um, what they decided was the hot flames coming out of the engine, you probably could live with them in vertical flight, but in horizontal flight, hitting the rear fuselage, it shook them. In the Harriet, it caused lots of problems. The rear of the fuselage vibrating caused structural cracking, failure of equipment that was located in there, big maintenance burden. So adding much hotter jets probably wouldn't help. So the solution was, well, move the fuselage out of the way. So they did put it on the wing, had lots of other benefits. It looks a bit wacky. They spent the best part of a decade working on this in secret. Here's Margaret Thatcher having a look at the mock-up in 1982 after the Falklands War. She seems quite pleased with it. Everyone else at Kingston seems quite pleased that she seems pleased with it. Um, unfortunately, she didn't fund it, so the smiles were, were, were for naught. But certainly they stuck with the, 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 the basic principle of the 1154, although no one would ever say it will definitely work. There was this understanding. You only find out by doing it. So that brings us up to the, to the present day. Um, as I said, the, the experience of the Harrier, the work on the Level 54 projects in the meantime, all the testing work done at that dodgy rig out in, out in Essex, um, gave this experience that fed into the JSF. There was this program in the UK called the VARC Harrier, where they made a digital control system for the Harrier, which is a famously difficult aircraft to fly. The pilot has two controls with his left hand, one for the throttle, one for the nozzles. Get the wrong lever at the wrong time, and you have to eject, or something nasty is going to happen to you. Um, lots of Harriers, well, a number of Harriers have been lost through that. Um, and the idea is that the JSF is meant to be more sophisticated. The pilot should be controlling the systems rather than controlling the aircraft. So they've made the, this aircraft now so easy to fly, the Harrier, that I remember seeing an ITN journalist who can't even drive a car. They put him in the back seat. He landed a Harrier quite successfully. So those of you who know how hard that is can appreciate what the work was that they did. The 1154 would have been hard still because it had that plenum chamber burning system. That added another, another um, variable to, to the system. Depending on how much plenum chamber burning you had, the, the aircraft could tilt backwards and forwards depending on how much boost there was in the front nozzles. So the pilot would also have had to have controlled that. So it looks like that would have been a big issue. So subsequent work dealt with those issues, got lots of buy-in on, on modeling jet flows in vertical flight and control systems that went into the, the uh, JSF program. Obviously, the UK first were going for the, for the F-35B, the vertical takeoff one with this big fan in the front. Very different propulsion system from the Harrier, but exactly the same control system as the VARC Harrier. Um, so all these kind of, all, all the uh, 
gizmos that have to be controlled are invisible to the pilot. The computer does it all. And that's 25 years' work in the UK to make that possible. Um, having done all that work, again, for 15 years or so, the UK involved in the JSF spent, spent uh, quite a, several billion, I think, total by now. Um, they decided to throw that out and go for the, the conventional aircraft carrier version. Um, it's not entirely clear why that was. The, the decision's now being brought back, apparently, because it's meant to save money, give a, an aircraft that could fly further from the new aircraft carriers the UK are getting. This is one of the Queen Elizabeth class here. Fly further, deliver more munitions. Um, but unfortunately, it seems like taking the ski jump off the front, the famous ski jump that Harriers take off from, um, and a few other modifications hadn't been factored into the budget. Um, it looks like it's going to cost possibly £2 billion more than expected to convert for the conventional version. So actually, the cost savings that this promised have been eaten up in the conversion to allow this to land on that. So now they're going back to plan B, as they say, um, possibly. So the Prime Minister's due to announce this next week one way or the other. Um, so it is up in the air at the moment. But clearly, I think, with the JSF and looking back at the P-1154, the issues between the RAF and the Navy, who has the Harriers, should the Navy have carriers, what type of carriers, who should control the F-35, should it be the Air Force or the Navy and so on, just reflect ongoing, continuous political issues that are illustrated by the P-1154. Um, the same old things, budgets are at the heart of it, inter-service rivalry, everything at the moment being driven by Afghanistan, what happens after Afghanistan and so on. Um, so to me, it's just very, very striking how the, the problems of today aren't necessarily answered by the issues of yesterday, but can be informed and illustrated by them and hopefully provide some guidance of, of what not to do, at least, if not what to do. So thank you for your time, and I'm happy to take any questions anybody might have. would like to be first? Uh, Mike Berwick, um, ex-Fleet uh, Air Arm, as an air engineer. Mm -hmm. um, I've recognised the buccaneers, recognised the <laughs> glossy mouth uh, on, the, on the tail, yeah. um, and the Oson Hermes with the fixed wing. I saw them landing there, and I thought, well, this is too small an aircraft carrier for these buccaneers, and particularly for the phantoms, and the oh, not, not on Hermes phantoms but the sea fictions as well. So um, the question mainly, there's two basically. One is um, that knowledge is going to be lost, as was um, referred to in the previous uh, lecture here about the Pleterum, that um, if we go for conventional, a lot of the knowledge gained in managing, controlling um, the deck movements, um, the engineering of fixed wing is going to be lost. There's a massive gap between knowledge, which is no longer viable at the moment, because we don't have uh, real aircraft carriers when you have basically three-deck cruisers. The second question, what are your views on that, um, if, you, if you stayed on the conventional side? Mm -hmm. But the second question is a bit more technical, in that the control laws developed for the... Um, the um, digital Harrier, uh, has that been bought by the Americans for the F-35B? Is there many, any significant difference between the one and the other? Uh, in answer to the first, uh, we are working, in answer to the first question, um, I think, yeah, there is a big issue about losing just the basic kind of deck sense 
that people get on carriers. There's a reason why they have to do all that training, and it's to get the, the deck sense into people's heads. Um, with the conventional operations, obviously that's, that experience was lost um, more than 30 years ago in the UK. So there's, there's very few people around who can remember and you know, no one in the services. But even with the, the plan to kind of work with the Americans around that to get some training in deck operations, that's only really around pilots and a few deck crews, I understand it. So I can't see how they'll get the deck sense except the hard way probably which is by a few people in the sea and possibly a few fatalities. Um, and also, there's just going to be a huge learning curve, and that's going to be very costly. You're not going to have an, a carrier and aircraft declared operational for much longer than you would ordinarily. I do think that with uh, vertical takeoff aircraft, you have less to learn, possibly. One of the, the telling things was seeing the recent trials on the USS Wasp, and I'd seen, I've seen lots of work on, on the modeling and some test work on the ground environment from when a B version lands. And there were concerns about people being blown over the side. But actually, if you see the photographs, you see people just standing around quite happily as these things take off past them and so on. So it looks like the, the B version will probably be easier to get on and off the ship. And with all vertical takeoff aircraft, there's less manhandling the aircraft, less things to do on landing and on takeoff, fewer people required on deck. So it's both fewer people leading to fewer costs, but also fewer people leading to few, fewer opportunities for incidents, I think. Um, so I do think there is a major issue that has not properly been addressed. And even if we go back to the B version, we've got rid of the Harriers, so we don't have the ongoing experience. Um, we've literally got rid of the Harriers. We sold them. Um, in answer to your second question, yes, the Americans have bought the control laws. They own them. We have to license them back, as I understand it, from the Americans because they paid for a lot of the work beyond about 1994, 1996. They started paying for it. Um, and as I know from my work, what Uncle Sam pays for, Uncle Sam owns. Um, they're very clear about that. I'm always happy to take money, so I'm sure the VART carrier people were as well. Um, but it has made – I don't see how the F-35B could fly – without those control laws. It's very simple. You always pull up back on the stick to go up. Um, you always use the, your left hand to go faster and slower. It's it's kind of very simple, intuitive. Um, there is a um, there are probably Harrier pilots in the audience, so I'll be careful what I say, but there is a very um, macho Harrier culture of the you know they are the best pilots and I know a lot of them and they're they're clearly not just physically the best pilots but mentally you know quite dexterous and so on. Um, but the JSF, the idea is it's meant to be flown by your average pilot or your less than average pilot. In some cases, you may be not such a good pilot, but a very good systems operator, and that may have more value. So in that case, it works, but it did take a hell of a lot of time to do, and the proof of the pudding will always be in the actual eating, both in the control laws and getting them on board the carrier. I uh, come with the building. Thanks very much for a very informed uh, lecture. Just fascinating. Um, my question is, uh, in your research into the historical and uh, aspects, and, and obviously your current work on, on F-35 at the moment, um, have you come to any sort of conclusions about what competition or the idea of alternatives do, does it in, in driving down cost? Because it strikes me that in the past, if something got cancelled, you know, you had a, a, a whole swathe of alternatives to, to kind of go for, you know, both within the UK and the US, you know, TFX gets cancelled, F-15, F-14 comes comes in to sort of, sort of save the day. Now we're, we're a bit more limited in, in, in what alternatives there are. So can you say something about that in, in, in terms of sort of, you know, cost? Okay. Um, 
In terms of competition, certainly one of the com comment that comes to mind is one that was made around the strategic defence and security review around cancelling Harrier or Tornado. It's like being asked, do you want your, your arm or your leg chopped off? It's, um, it, sometimes the competition is not really there. They're very different, the systems, the, the possible benefits and, and so on. So they say it's comparing apples and pears. Um, it's more different than that in some cases. The issues around, for example, the JSF is three versions of the same aircraft, but they have very different benefits and the pros and cons vary between them. So get, landing on an aircraft carrier on the conventional C version is, is, is a man's job and still is. Whereas landing the, the um, B version onto a carrier will probably be much simpler and much simpler than the Harrier. Um, the accident rates for Harriers landing on carriers are, apart from wartime, virtually zero in comparison to what goes on on conventional carriers. So the, co the costs shift. I've got, I did do a presentation a few years ago showing the, the different spread of costs across what in the UK are called the lines of development, the, the famous tepid oil um, uh, acronym. And it's just hugely different between this, the same type of um, CTOL aircraft going onto carriers, cats and traps, and Stovall aircraft. So when you say competition, it's, it really is a case of an, a, another terrible phrase, but swings and roundabouts. It's it, com, com, true competition would be having two V-style aircraft of similar performance, but two contractors. Competition is between companies. It's not really between capabilities. Um, and I think that's what the present government has been trying to do in order to save costs. It's what's going on in the States as well. Um, I, in an ideal world, they'd have everything, but because costs are limited, they have to choose something. And that's why the arguments get so fraught, because what's important to one person isn't important to another. And it's very hard, I think, for sometimes in inter-service rivalry type situations for people to see the other side's perspective, because they know someone's got to get the chop somewhere. Chris Orlibar, chairman of Royal Aeronautical Brooklyn's yeah. former Concord. Anyway, my question... Two questions. One simple one. With the Olympus engine on the proposed 1154, were the shafts contra-rotating? Yes. Thank you. And the other, why do we need manned aircraft? Is that really necessary now, or will UAVs really make all these, these F-35s completely redundant? as they come into service. Okay. Well, just to go back to the first question, actually, on the, the, the version of the Olympus core used on the 1154 and the BS-100 had the annular combustor, which Concorde had to wait quite a few years for as well. So some of the technology did go into Concorde eventually. But on the manned aircraft issue, um, personally, I think it comes down to what it is that the man brings, or the woman, um, and that's decision-making ability. There, you can program computers to do essentially a whole series of yes, no. Is it this? If yes, do, th do that. If no, do that, and so on. But for the kind of more nuanced decision-making issues, things that I've uh, heard about in Afghanistan, um, I worked with some people in the Harrier team and I'm aware of some of the issues that had to be addressed. Um, and there were issues where you've got a pilot looking at a screen. He's been told one thing in his ear. He's seeing something on the screen that doesn't quite fit with what he's been told he was briefed on quite another matter he has to make a decision and computers can't make those decisions on a, wi a wider aspect there's a whole series of moral legal ethical issues around it i know that in um the second gulf war the storm shadow missile was used and they ended up it was meant to be a quite a rapid response system they ended up putting a lawyer in the loop 
because they had to decide, if this goes amiss, whose fault is it? The people who fired it, the people who programmed it, the people who built it? So there is a whole range of issues that are emerging. I think unmanned aircraft will have a role, just as VSTOL aircraft had a role. I think it's a similar issue where they'll be part of a mixed force. But I think the idea of replacing unmanned aircraft as unmanned is an incorrect one, but it was probably an incorrect one that we learned the hard way. Except, of course, the screen, the representation from a UAV, if you have a nice three-dimensional screen to look at at your base, is going to be one over which you can make decisions? Or is, it, is there an element of cowardice in dr driving a UAV, um, putting yourself at risk? Well... <sighs> There may be that argument, but certainly with the, the kind of the, the immersive screen technology, there's not the bandwidth, and there doesn't seem to appear to be any possibility in the, the foreseeable future to have the uplink to satellites. If you if you'd have two aircraft taking all the data bandwidth, um, and that's all you could do, so it's very limiting. Um, I, was, I had a meeting with some people from the Defence Science and Technology Laboratories last week, and they were very clear that bandwidth is the constant issue. So what they're trying to do is process information at source and then send it back. So the pilot wouldn't be getting a true picture anyway. He'd be getting processed data, which again brings up the issue of what, what, what is he not seeing that the computers have pre-decided for him that he can't decide on. So I, I do think it's, it is one of those things that it's always going to be in five years, it'll be there. And it has been for about the last, I mean, I've seen stuff from Kingston that was done in the 1980s where, you know, they had unmanned fighter aircraft they were drawing and they reckoned by 1992 they'd be ready to go. And they're always, it always seems to be in about five years. Uh, Paul Stoddart, uh, Air Power Group. Uh, Michael, um, very interesting uh, presentation. A um, couple of questions. The uh, technical challenges of both TSR2 and uh, P1154 were uh, dramatic, extreme. Um, would you consider that uh, the British aircraft industry and the RAF have tended to um, expect too much? And uh, second thought, um, in your research, have you come across any... Uh, examination of the concept of uh, rather than having a short takeoff vertical landing but uh, short takeoff short landing so you actually get rid of that very very challenging vertical landing case um well, answering the second question first yes but what happens is it ends up costing just as much and it's probably just as difficult because the aircraft's lighter at the end of the mission and fighter aircraft have a lot of power. It's usually just as easy almost to, if you're going to use powered lift anyway for short, short landing, because there's so much energy to get rid of, you have to slow the aircraft down somewhere and doing it aerodynamically makes the aircraft so inefficient in other areas of flight, you end up using some form of powered lift. Um, the only real issue would be hot gas ingestion, um, and some ground erosion. And I think those issues are, probably more amenable to solutions than people sometimes realise. There's very simple issues like on Harriers and on the P1154, they talked about what's called a rolling vertical landing where you just move, come in with five or ten knots of speed. So it's not essentially a short landing because once you hit the ground, you hit the brakes and you stop in a couple of metres. Um, but that solves appear to solve most of the problems. There are other ways around it of blipping the nozzles just as you land, so it takes the hot gas away from the intakes. Um, and you get the, the flexibility of, as we saw in the picture, landing on HMS Intrepid in the Falklands, vertical landing does, does give real benefits that I think people appreciate. And I think it's John Farley's quote, it's easier to stop and land and land and try and stop. So if you, you know, if you get the, the speed down to zero, you haven't got any forward motion to kill. So it just makes things actually simpler in a lot of ways. So I think the trade-offs that I've seen, they've always just ended up getting, well, it might as well just have the vertical ability. 
Um, sorry, you have to remind me again of the first question. It was uh, a question really of the um, technical challenges uh, imposed oh, yeah. by the yeah. RF's uh, ambitions for very, very high performance. Yeah, I, well, I would say that, again, talk to people, when you talk to people in the services, you appreciate that they're being asked to kill and risk being killed. So it's very hard to sort of say that they're asking for too much because they're the ones doing actually the really hard work. Um, the, the dangerous tasks, the, the, the things where, you know, moral issues have to be addressed and so on. It's very easy to sit in the office and say, well, if you go for 80% of the performance, it'll save 50% of the budget. Um, what I've usually seen is that there are very good reasons they're asking for what's seen as gold plating. And there's very good reasons why they believe it's technically possible. It's just as they go through the development process, issues come up. In the case of TSR2, it's more organization issues. The, the cooperation between the design teams in, within BAEC were not good. The people at Wharton always said the worst cooperation they ever had was with the people at Weybridge. It wasn't with the people on Tornado in Germany and Italy and so on. And similarly, the, you know, the Olympus engine that was used in TSR2 wasn't great, and that was a political fix. So there are these other issues that I think technically probably could have been done. A bit more money, a bit more time, as with most things in life. If you look at programs like the JSF, they're decade-long programs to get into service. Things like TSR2 have been done in five, eight-year timeframes, and similarly with the P1154. Um, I would say that... The 1154 could have been made to work, but it would have been used very differently from the Harrier. So it may have, the benefits of Vistol would have been different because they would have been, they couldn't have used fields, for example, even on a short landing, just the amount of energy. I was very kindly sent last week some pictures of undercarriage tests, um, that were done in the 1960s on the 1154. And the last picture in the pack illustrated that they were asking for the same CBR, the California bearing ratio, as New Forest ponies have. So it just kind of makes you realize what, what was actually being asked. But they could have rolled back from that a bit. And in the end, VSTOL aircraft have generally been take, used on runways. But there's a realization that if the runway is attacked, you can take off from a taxiway or in a small area that's free. And coming into land where a pilot may be injured, tired, out of fuel, he can landing vertically solves a lot of potential problems there as well. So I, I do think they could have been done. Um, but TSR2, has anything else been done like that since? No. Um, 1154, on the other hand, you know, F-35B, subsequent projects, people have kept looking at it. So whether it should have been done is another matter. My own view, controversial, TSR2, I'm kind of with Dennis Healy, it shouldn't have been started. Um, or it shouldn't be started to be, to aim to be what it, what it was meant to be. What it ended up being was actually lower specification and so on. If they'd aimed a bit lower, I think that would have been a more sensible idea to start with. So in that case, yeah, the last few percent probably were the problem. But in the P1154, we, we don't know because it never flew. But technically, I think they were possible, yes. Kit Mitchell, um, in Harold Wilson's memoirs, there's an account of the cabinet discussion on the TSR2 cancellation, which seems to have been almost trivial. Uh, as I recall, Wilson sort of said, does anyone want to say anything? And nobody said anything, so they cancelled it. Um, are there other political memoirs giving background to the 1154 cancellation? Um, Healy's mentioned it, um, and he, he takes credit. He kind of says, you know, I created the Harriet, essentially, because that's Dennis Healy's nature to be very forceful on things and so on. But it, actually looking at the cabinet files, 
what was clear was the decisions were effectively made at the end of 1964 on all, all three, the HS-681, the transport aircraft as well. Um, and the RAF were very clear that we don't need TSR-2, we need something that fulfills that mission. So once they were offered the F-111, the TFX from the Americans, they were, it's not fair to say happy, but they could live with going for that as long as they had that their clear, definitive, semi-strategic air power role that defined them against the other services. They were quite content with the decision. So by the time of the cancellation, strangely, they did give this period of grace in the first few months of 1964, partly to do with just the contractual arrangements on the TSR2 that they just passed a, a cancellation point. Um, but also they did do some serious work, and the numbers actually were looking very bad financially. The development costs looked like they'd be greater than the production costs because they were going to buy fewer of them because the development costs had gone up and taken up the budget and so on. So they're in this kind of vicious cycle with it. Um, and there were lots of technical problems that were emerging. There's a very good book come out recently by a chap called Damien Burke that covers a lot of the issues around TSR2 and kind of busts a lot of the myths around it and shows it up for... Any, you know, any engineer I've talked to about development programs, they're quite clear that you learn by doing. You know, you, just because you've drawn it doesn't mean it's going to work. Um, and that's what's happening with TSR2. But because they decided to build 20 development aircraft up front rather than a few prototypes to have a go, um, the costs were all up front as well. And therefore, it looked like we've just spent a lot of money and got very little for it and potentially it could get worse. So in Cabinet, there wasn't a huge defence for it. Once Healy was against it because he was a powerful minister, minister of defence, um, that was it really for all three programmes. Um, there was, in the case of P1154, when they went for the, the, the Harrier de development, they did look into boosting the Harrier by adding plenum, plenum chamber burning. But instead, they saw it's better to add a bigger version of the cold Pegasus. So they did extend the work as well. They didn't kind of just go for outright cancellation of everything. Um, but the financial situation really dictated their actions, I think, at the time. Lord Kirkby. The... Um... <laughs> Aircraft are very expensive, obviously, to develop, and trying to, it seems common sense to have a common aircraft with variations for the Royal Navy and for the Royal Air Force. Seeing the way things actually went, would it actually have been cheaper and quicker to have two separate aircraft using some common technology, but actually two separate aircraft that would have actually fulfilled the two roles much better? I, I was, I'm thinking of things like the shuttle seemed like an excellent idea so you don't keep throwing away your booster. In the end, the complexity of it <laughs> means that they're probably going back to simple boosters instead of the complexity of the space shuttle. I would say it would have been cheaper probably still to have two completely separate aircraft with completely separate systems because then you can tailor the systems to each aircraft. In Say if you've gone ahead with the P-1154 and used some systems from the Phantom in that, there's a very, the, the avionics were in a very, very different environment, a much more adverse environment, so they would have had to be changed anyway. So often trying to save money by doing common things actually costs a lot more. Um, possibly the JSF is an example in, in point of that, but um, I do think at the time there was a, they could have quite possibly had a kind of conventional aircraft carrier aircraft that was a, a fighter that the Air Force could have used as well to replace the Lightnings. They did look into that briefly and it ended up thinking the Phantom, the Phantom effectively fulfilled that role ultimately. Um, and could have gone ahead with the 1154, which in itself was not much more complex than the, the Harrier. 
apart from the plenum chamber burning, it, that allowed a, a similar-sized engine to carry a much bigger load of fuel, so it had greater performance. But the avionics were essentially the same as the Harrier. A lot of the equipment was the same as the Harrier. So the ultimate cost of the Harrier could have could have been of a similar order to the P1154 plus 50% for the, you know, the price you pay for the PCB. But yeah, it was probably perfectly feasible at the time. Certainly, it would have been cheaper than what we got, which is the end, you know, some RAF squadrons went from one type to another every three or four years. It's all kind of Healy's decisions rolled out over the 60s and 70s. John Hazelwood. I have a slightly different view uh, to the commonly accepted one. In the middle 60s, I had close contact with some Whitehall civil servants, and I became aware of the fact uh, that there were several committees without official minutes. And the interesting thing was they'd started um, with um, Macmillan in the 50, late 50s, and those committees were working on an agenda of getting us integrated into Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and as a part of that... As far as I understand, the aviation, our aviation industry had to be uh, integrated by whatever means and that um, therefore we could no longer have a national industry. And the reason for the getting rid of a lot of the uh, uh, programs which were British origin was to get us eventually into this integrated system. And I can remember... If, after I found out about that, by chance, I was talking to Barnes Wallace and uh, discussing the same issues. And I can, I'll never, ever forget how upset he was about having to do collaboration with Europe because it was extremely expensive and it was of absolutely no benefit to this country. I, well, I would say that some of the things I mentioned there kind of in the 1965s, going in with the French on some programs and so on, quite possibly bear some of that out. There was a genuine belief, I think, that development costs were becoming so great that you could spend all your money on them, which meant you'd have very few production aircraft. So the idea was by throwing a lot in with the, the Europeans, as Amory did, as Healy did, you'd get more aircraft in frontline service, therefore bolstering the UK in a, a service sense, but at the same time at the cost of the industrial capacity. Um, I think that's what was seen as the right thing to do, whether it was or not is op open to debate. Um, it's what happened, and it's what people kind of believed should be done. Um, there were very few people in government, I think, arguing against it. But in part, that was to do with predictions on... There were lots of these kind of lines, and lines drawn on graphs showing that if we keep going at this rate, and it's Augustine's law in the 1970s, that by year X we'll be able to afford one aircraft and the services will share it. And similar things that happened in America in the 70s and 80s happened in the UK. And there are things at Q that kind of illustrate this, you know, just do the dotted line extrapolation, we won't be able to afford much. So that's what's behind some of it. Um, but yeah, the governments wanted to get into Europe. They thought they'd missed the boat in 1957, 1958, and de Gaulle wanted a price. So I could well believe that there's lots of those discussions going on that aren't minuted, as well as the ones that were. Stephen Rowe from BMT Group, or well, mostly retired actually, but BMT Group, we're actually the designers of the aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. Can I um, ask you to cast your mind forward 10 or 15 years? You're back in this lecture theatre and you're giving a, a lecture about the JSF. Yeah. Can you give us a brief synopsis? <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, well, I would say I don't think it will be a failure study in the way that 1154 is, as in program completely gone. Um, I do think that whatever we think is going to happen now won't have happened, but I do think it's too, it's, it's too embedded in future plans to be cancelled. There's what else, what else is going to replace it? Um, for the UK, certainly, I, I think it potentially could be cancelled. Um, they, but as I understand it, the contracts with the aircraft carriers are what tied them in. The government would have backed out on those if they possibly could. Um, and it would seem perverse to, buy great big aircraft carriers and put like four Apache helicopters on them or something like that. But you never know. UK defence policy is ever interesting. Um, but, yeah, I do think that we, the Americans, if I had to gamble, and it's probably just over 50%, I would say that the B will go ahead. And I base that on someone, a friend in the States once telling me that the way decisions are made by the American president is in the morning he has a meeting with the army generals and they tell him what to do and then for lunch he meets the navy admirals and in the evening he has dinner with the air force officers and then when he goes home the marine on the gate of the white house tells him what he's going to do um <laughs> so i never underestimate the straight power of the marines to get what they want the harrier illustrated that case um i do think there are just interesting things whether the c version works they put the hook basically in the wrong place um it could be many programs have been scuppered by apparently minor technical issues that can't be solved or can only be solved at great expense. And the C version is the one thing where there is a backup. There's the Super Hornet, which can still do some of the job um, and is in production, whereas for the other platforms, there is no alternative. Back to Margaret Thatcher again. Could I now ask Kit Mitchell to propose a vote of thanks? Michael, you've shown us that um, the aircraft cancellations of the 60s were controversial at the time and are quite clearly still controversial. And they really were a turning point that changed the nature of the aircraft industry in this country. And you've shown us very well how they are still affecting decisions today. It's been really great to have someone with a professional historical background looking at these controversies and giving us a considered view as to why they happened, the technical and even more the political pressures that caused things to turn out the way they did. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And could I ask everyone to join me in thanking Michael? Michael.